I told you last week that we would, uh, I would have these typed up for you. The, uh, I have all but one listed on here. The one is, uh, number 13 that, um, it's on the back of one of these actually, I think. And then I didn't run the back on the rest. Um, and that is the desecration of the temple. Um, is the only one not listed here. It's on this one. I better keep by the way, you can get this on uh, my book's Facebook site. So, All right, um, we went over these last week. Remember, we're looking at the sign of the times. Uh, Paul instructs us that the day of the Lord will not come and there, until you see two things. And one of those two things was the great falling away that we talked about three and four weeks ago. Uh, two and three weeks ago, sorry. Uh, we had that great falling away. And we studied that and we looked at it in the context of the local church and the Christianity as well as the world. Uh, falling in this actually it was more than three weeks ago. It was like a month ago because we talked about sin within the church. So we talk about the falling away. That is one of the things that has to occur before Christ comes. So if you haven't seen that happen, the Thessalonians were supposed to be relaxed. You haven't missed anything. You haven't missed the coming of the day of the Lord. You haven't missed the rapture. You haven't missed the catching up uh, of the saints that's described by Paul. Uh, secondly, that was the first indicator. The second thing was the revelation of the son of, of uh, the son of the revelation of the man of sin, that he would be revealed before the coming of the day of the Lord. And so, before we have that rapture. If the son of, if the son of, why do I keep saying the son of? If the man of sin has not been revealed, then we have confidence that we have not missed the coming of Christ. And so, based upon those two evidences, the Thessalonians were to be relaxed and, and to be confident that they haven't missed the resurrection, they hadn't missed the Lord's coming, that no matter what rumors that they heard about a partial resurrection or a partial rapture or, or whatever they'd heard, they could discount those because these two things were not evident in their day. And in fact, the, of course, the evidence there is that these two things are only going to be really evident um, in the day of Christ's coming. And again, we looked at the ebb and flow through church history that, um, of what a falling away is. And uh, we might see sometimes that we consider kind of a dark time where it seems like God's word isn't getting out and there is a smothering of God's truth. Um, and we might, and many in that era that we call the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, uh, really viewed their time as this falling away, this great apostasy. But even in that context, even while they were burning to death and drowning and beheading uh, people, for doing such ridiculous things as translating the Bible into a known language, modern language, um, and that's what a lot of them were guilty of, I want you to recognize that they weren't doing that to try to, because they had a low view of the Bible, but because they had a high view of it, um, and a ridiculously high view that made it not what it was intended to be. And much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, <clears throat> who had such a high view of the law that they ended up violating the law in the midst of trying to elevate it. And so we find these descriptions of uh, this falling away as being really the all of Christendom uh, 
turning away from the Bible. And that really never happened. There were times of darkness where the Bible wasn't readily available, but organized Christianity, wherever it was found, still held the Bible in high esteem. Granted, the Catholic Church and others said, well, what the Pope says is equal to the Bible, uh, church tradition is equal to the Bible, but they didn't downplay the Bible's authority in terms of its uh, God's Word and such like that. But now, in our day, uh, we have really a very unique situation in church history where the majority of Christendom is uh, questioning large portions of God's Word. And we tied that to the falling away and we looked at that tracing. Last week, we went through and talked about the necessity that we distinguish between uh, date setting and examination and evaluation and, and looking for candidates to fill this role of um, man of sin. I would contend that there is no reason to even begin looking for this man until the falling away happens. Um, that that chronology there in Thessalonians is very important because the falling away, as we saw in God's plan, uh, would have been for about a generation or more. Between 70 and 100 years has been God's pattern between when it happens and its punishment, its judgment. And so uh, we should have been looking for that ahead of time. And if we didn't see that, the way the Bible describes it, um, there was no reason to look for the secondary element, which is the man of sin. And so uh, that's why I handled them in that order. It was that order out of Thessalonians. So we've looked at the condition of Christendom, um, so-called. We've looked at the state of the church. We've looked at the sin descriptions there in Timothy, First uh, and Second Timothy both, uh, in Peter and other passages. We've looked at those. We've seen the falling away, that it is, that it is full-blown, that it has been going on at least since the turn of last century, um, and certainly by the 30s and 40s. We see it in full bloom. Um, and so we have reaped the results of that now in this generation to the extent that people won't give you the Bible. They, won't, they don't even call it the good book anymore. <laughs> um, it, and so they'll, they won't... It used to be you could walk in, at least they would reference that. Okay, So having established that, as well as all the other things, we come now to the description of the man of sin, and we say, well, since we have a falling away that we can identify as having been in place for some time, it is time to start looking for candidates that fit the role of man of sin. And we went through the attributes that we find in God's Word. I went through all those references last week. We did the building of this list. Um, and you'll find some things on this list stated maybe slightly differently than what we talked about. Um, but essentially, it is uh, the same. Uh, I emphasize some different things than maybe this emphasizes. Um, but we looked at this list built out of Thessalonians built out of um, Daniel particularly. We have a couple of passages in Daniel as well as some other references. And so we know that this is what we should be looking for. There may be other qualities, um, and I'm going to derive some tonight that I'm going to add to this that are not necessarily biblical. I would contend that they are more uh, reasonable or we, we could... Uh, Presume them, and I, that's a very uh, 
I'm very cautious about using that, that we can assume that if this is true, then this probably is true. But nowhere in God's Word do I find them directly stated. And so I'm very careful putting them in a format like this, but I am going to include them tonight. And so let me go very quickly through this list. Uh, For those of you who weren't here last week, we have that he is a self-exalted one. Um, That is that he is not interested in elevating anyone or promoting anyone or anything other than himself and his. Um, And he will uh, be willing to uh, share the stage with no one. Uh, The Bible talks about him as the deceiver, but he also talks about him that he is that he has mysteries about him and that he knows sinister schemes. That he has this inside track and many think, well, that means he's a really smart guy. No, not necessarily. This is not an intelligence quotient. This is simply his ability to confound the world. He he can lie and, and not only is it obvious, but it's accepted by an overwhelming majority And again, we're not looking in a specific uh, room for those people, but really a global attribute here. Um, So it's his connection to um, hidden truth. Um, That's literally what is involved there, is hidden truth, that he knows some things both about himself and about what's going on that people don't know. Um, We don't really know who he is. We don't really know where he's from. His agenda is largely hidden from our eyes unless we are willing to really look for those. It describes him as abandoning the God of his fathers, that he walks away from his previous religious affiliations, whether it's of his own family or of his people, um, can be debated, but essentially he's going to move move himself into a position with no religious allegiances. He is lawless. This is not just the moral law that we talked about, but it's also the law of the land. Um, He considers himself a law to himself, that he is the law. And uh, and so we're looking for someone of that nature. He opposes the one true God, and this is that place called Antichrist, which is not the opposite of Christ, but the opposer of Christ. And so he uh, opposes all who worship any God, with radical exclusivity. Remember that, that that's the big deal. Do not be a fundamentalist anything or you will be on the hit list um, because we're going to see he's going to oppose really even the, the woman that rides the beast is going to be destroyed um, with his uh, approval and she represents false religion. So he's not going to just reserve this for Christianity. Christianity is first, certainly going to be high on the list but he's really going to be targeting all organized religion as we know it, and particularly those who are um, fundamental adherents to it. Um, he does what he wants, and this is reiterated. Um, he gets his way. Uh, he, he has very high ambitions, and it seems that no matter how many things get thrown in his path, he uh, overcomes them just waltz right through them. Uh, and this is tied together with the next one, number seven, he prospers. And again, this isn't just uh, a normal thing. This is a meteoric rise to power and authority with, that's inexplicable. How can this happen? 
You're looking for that nature of prosperity that just uh, is can't be explained. It's just wow. Um, you sit back and look at it, and you say, "I don't, I, you know, no amount of hard work, no amount of of marketing yourself can really accomplish that. Something's going on behind the scenes." He speaks blasphemies, and he is the blasphemer, uh, attributing the works of God to others. Uh, I'm, I'm just listing out several things that are called blasphemy in the Scripture: denying the reality of the incarnation, um, accepting the adoration of men that. Uh, Honor and glory that belongs to God, he accepts for himself. Okay, He honors a God of fortresses. This one is a tough one. Um, I am at the point of looking at the idea of fortresses differently than a building or a structure or a situation of warfare. Um, but we're having a hard time in Christendom really identifying that. Um, what is more valuable, I think, to see what he does is that he attacks other fortresses. And again, I'm not looking for buildings and acts of war as much as the uh, aggressive assault upon uh, the philosophies of men and uh, the ideologies that uh, are prevalent in society. He advances this God to the world. He gives, the world its, the, it gives it the world's wealth and uses it to make a profit from the world. Um, some have taken this idea of fortresses and linked it to Freemasonry, um, using the idea of their whole symbol age built around building and such like that. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, that's been around for, well, at least uh, 250, 300 years, and it really goes back into the story of Isis and Osiris and all that Egyptian uh, religion. And then, of course, uh, he manipulates the world's economies. Um, he is, of course, uh, having unprecedented influence. Um, this is not necessarily a positive influence, but uh, he does have global influence economically. And you would expect this in what I'm going to give you as a reference point that I would derive at attribute or, or uh, character that we're going to talk about in a minute. He does not regard the desire of women. We talked about this last uh, week. Um, I feel this is a strong description of homosexuality. Um, if not himself, he is a certainly one that is going to proliferate it, uh, support it. Um, and of course, uh, anyone who is doing that is automatically at odds with God's design for the family. He will negotiate a Middle East peace treaty, seven years in length, and will be far-ranging Geographically, uh, there's one exception. That's the nation of Jordan. And so we should see some movement towards that. And that's actually going to be something we're going to talk about next week as we kind of wrap this up. Are we seeing this movement? The 13th one that's not on your list is that he will violate that peace treaty halfway through it. I don't include it here because it's not something I think we need to look for prior to the coming of Christ. It is described there in Thessalonians that he will do this. He's the abomination caused desolation. Um, whether it is identifying the man who will do that or that that act will reveal him um, has people at odds over that interpretation of how to interpret that. And I would contend that it is the prior one. It is the man who will violate that treaty that we are looking for, not necessarily the violation of that treaty. But if we see a seven-year peace treaty, um, realize that either you get ready to leap out of your seat because... The rapture happens, 
And if it doesn't, prepare yourself for three and a half years. Um, you're going to be probably raptured in that time when he is revealed. But uh, from other scripture references, I feel we have a high confidence level that the 13th attribute is really there for national Israel to say, whoa, this is the guy that we're supposed to be watching out for. This is the new Antiochus Epiphanes, and we need to run to the mountains. And that last 13th one is really for Israel to know to vacate Jerusalem, vacate the land of Israel, get over to Jordan, and seek to find safety for the next three and a half years, the next 42 months, and watch out. So, um, I also tried last week to defend the whole procedure of looking for a candidate, that we are not date-setting by doing so, but we are instructed to look for this man revealed. And uh, my secondary qualities that I'm looking for are tied to the other passages that talk about entities we're looking for, we've already studied. And that is that we're looking for the beast. We're looking for the last head of the great beast, the second beast of Revelation 13. We're looking for the rise of that nation that God describes uh, very fully in that passage as well as in Daniel. And we identified that nation as being the United States. Um, I would I come to the assumption then that the man of sin is tied to that nation. I don't have a specific verse that says so. But they are so similar in their objectives and goals um, that, and, and it is unreasonable, I believe, to think that the man of sin is going to be secondary or ancillary outside of the beast that's going to come to that power and face Christ down. And so I would put in there as a secondary characteristic. Again, not I don't have a Bible verse for that, so this is my... Uh, reasonable conclusion is that that man of sin needs to be tied to that empire that will face Christ. And so he will be involved in that. Because we've always looked at the revival of the Roman Empire, we have always looked for candidates for the man of sin in Europe. We have always confined ourselves to European candidates because um, we're looking for a revived ten-nation empire uh, in uh, Europe, and we keep looking there and anticipating it. Somewhere along the line, maybe because of his role as the false messiah, we have looked for someone of Jewish descent, and so they have fingered a lot of powerful Jewish people in that respect, um, from the Rothschilds to Henry Kissinger to many others there in uh, European region. Of course, um, once there was rumor that Hitler had Jewish roots and that he was the man of sin and so we've had plenty of sightings like that, plenty of, of uh, accusations. And, uh, um, and I don't fault them. I, I think that uh, one of the errors that we had was that we didn't wait for the falling away. We didn't wait for that to fully occur. But honestly, in the 40s, I think they saw a lot of the roots of the falling away already well in place um, coming into World War II. Um, but uh, rather what I see, and this is my second quality that I can't put a finger on in Scripture, but I think we have a principle there that we can hold to, is that he is going to be, rather than of Jewish descent, I believe he is going to be of Arab descent. That goes back to the statement um, in regards to Abraham um, of the war that will be almost eternal until the very end between Ishmael and Isaac, 
that 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 statement about that uh, we can go on and look at the distinguishment between Jacob and Esau as well, um, and of course the blessing that uh, uh, Isaac places on Jacob, and the leftover blessing that really wasn't a blessing at all that he gives to Esau. So we're looking uh, mostly though at the Ishmaelites, um, and I would contend that it would be make more sense for it to come out of that line based upon an extrapolation, and I admit that that's what it is, out of the curse or the statement about Ishmael, um, as well to a degree of Esau, though the Edomites are uh, the descendants of Esau and are wrapped up in Jordan and are really seem to be away from that. It seemed to be more intensely the, the Ishmaelites. Um, and so I'm adding those two that I have derived from a study of God's Word uh, that I have been... Uh, looking for. Now, when did I start really looking around? I need to add that before I come to this. And it really goes back to around the turn of this century. (laughs) Whenever you say that, don't you think of 1900, the turn of the century? The turn of the century was around 2000. Remember Y2K? You remember Y2K? The big stuff? Um, well, that's really when a lot of my prophecy notes were being put together and I started looking around and, and it's really during uh, the late 90s that I really came to an understanding of, of the U.S.'s role there in prophecy and started looking around and seeing some things and even, and, and if you want to know a reference point, uh, think George Bush the first. Senior George Bush was around when I was really starting to look around and, and uh, his statement of all these points of light and the new world order that he was putting into our vocabulary. He's already introducing it. Um, and it really got my attention. And, and uh, I was like, whoa, that's uh, scary things for our president to be saying. Um, and so we've come to this point. And so this has not been a recent search, but really something that's been going on for well over a decade. Four and a half years ago, I saw someone meteorically rise to power. And... Uh, out of nowhere, and I believe that a guy that we're not real sure what his name is, we're not exactly sure where he was born, we really don't know what he believes, we really don't know a lot about him, uh, to be honest with you, we don't know what his grades were in school, we can't find those out, we don't really know hardly anything, and we have a president in place here who goes from being um, a community leader in... Chicago, to becoming senator, to becoming president, uh, seemingly overnight and with almost no credentials um, coming in. And, and the majority of his votes were present, uh, not yes or no. As a senator, most of his votes were present, uh, just to show that he was there. And instead of saying yes or no and taking a position, and so we have this meteoric rise. And so when you see something like that, you begin to say, well, let's start touching our bases. Let's see. And so I started watching. I started watching very closely um, uh, how uh, he would uh, handle himself and, and what would occur. I've been waiting for several things to occur. And uh, I've been telling people that freely and that I have him on my sites. But there are two or three things that are on this list that I hadn't seen yet. And so until I see those things, I can't. Name him as a man of sin. And so even though number two was there, 
I was looking for some other things, and immediately um, at his first inst- installation, I, when he at that election night to see him on stage uh, doing something no other candidate really had ever done before, and that is to take the stage by himself and to receive the adoration of everyone. His family and running mate did come out and greet him for a moment with him for a moment. They were sent off stage, and then he concluded being on stage by himself. And this has been the attribute that we have seen uh, time and again from this president, and that is that he is uh, self-exalted. He is not interested in sharing the stage with anyone. Um, And uh, there's that high-mindedness of being unquestionable in terms of who he is and his willingness to receive the exaltation of others, um, even to a point of blasphemy. Um, and again, much of this you can find and is recorded, and many people, it is common knowledge. It is, uh, for many people, just humorous. But for we of the faith, it is a warning. And so when he goes to a meeting, and quote-unquote in fun, um, he is described as their Messiah, and he is hailed as that by the entire crowd, we should take warning that he is willing to receive that. This is not, this is not laughing at a joke. This was applauding a statement that here is our Messiah. Here's the one who will deliver us. Here's the one who will take away our sins. And here's the one that we put our trust in. Um, and we have this individual that has accepted that kind of adoration um, freely. He has not forewarned it. He has not stopped it. Um, he readily receives that kind of adoration from any and all that will give it. We come to number three as he abandoned the God of his fathers. Well, certainly, um, he, whatever you think his religious background was, the one that he claims is Christianity, he quickly turned away from his uh, mentor, um, his pastor, and uh, broke ranks with him as soon as it was not uh, expedient for his position. Uh, he broke ranks with his pastor and his church, uh, but also prior to that, breaking ranks with that of his adopted father and the place, the, the religious belief that he was assigned in, in uh, Indonesia uh, where, where he went to school. And he was identified there as Islamic. Um, whether he is Muslim or whether he is Christian is irrelevant. What we are supposed to be looking for is that he turns away from the God of his forefathers, whether the forefathers of his nation or his person. I would contend that we have a president who has done both. Take your pick. He has done both. And as essentially the one, the first president to ever stand up and declare this is not nor ever was a Christian nation. And that statement I agreed with 100%. But he secularized our nation and distanced himself from any God of his forebearers, whether within the nation or within 
his own family. He is lawless. And several of you have come to me with this, and so I don't need to rehearse too much of it, of his uh, statements, his public statements that he has made freely, again, not in secret, but out in the open, and no one seems to care when he says that our Constitution is a problem. That he is willing to act outside of the very law that he has sworn to defend. And many of you say, well, that's impeachable, that's impeachable. But no one's interested in impeaching him, are they? Why? Because he does what he wants and he will prosper. He will succeed at it. And there won't be any reasonable opposition that can really stop him. He is genuinely lawless. When you look at the theology of his background in his church that he was a member of, and Jeremiah Wright as his pastor, uh, pseudo-pastor, we find that truly there was an opposition to the one true God. There was being preached there, proclaimed there, that which he claimed to adhere to for a while was not the gospel, was in fact in opposition to it. And while many talk about the opposition that was preached, the, the poison that was preached against our nation from that pulpit, that really wasn't my concern. What I was more concerned was, was the poison preached against my Savior from that pulpit. And that one that would adhere to that, and even in his turning away from that belief system, he has not turned to the true God, but rather continues to oppose it, and again has led our nation to identify that her greatest interior enemy are fundamentalist Christians. This was at the movement of our current administration. So we find that much of this we go through in the honoring of a God of fortresses. I again uh, focus in on the ideology by which he takes down the world's wealth, brings it to his own profit, where he willingly and by great schemes, not of his necessarily of his own making, is able to topple the world's wealth. And when we talk about the world's wealth, we're not talking about nations, we're talking about industry. You're talking about taking over industry. And while we have seen socialism around for a long time, and communism to a degree as well, that took over industry and nationalized it, um, this is a means of not taking over broken systems, but really uh, encouraging and developing a means by which to take over uh, that which these industries that rule the world, the world's wealth, and to make a profit from it, not necessarily to others' benefit, but to his own and to that of his uh, authorities that he wants to establish. And uh, the manipulation of the world's economy, and I believe we see that, and again, this is derived right out of Habakkuk, um, that we see this occurring, just as stated. He is the one leading the way in this. Uh, we have four, five years now, four years, with no budget ever passed. And this fiscal cliff you're hearing about now, uh, that everyone's wringing their hands over is silliness. 
There is no physical cliff existing because the fact is is that he's going to do whatever he wants financially. And Habakkuk doesn't say that they're going to have a financial collapse. So I'm not wringing my hands on every financial economic report that comes out. Rather, I recognize that yes, trillions and trillions of dollars of debt are being created, but um, we have an entity that has promised to buy up all that debt and keep printing money to cover it forever. And created for him, and specifically for him, a safety net. And no, I'm not worried that the Chinese or the Europe will get figure it out and, and try to get out of it um, because he's going to prosper. <laughs> he's going to do what he wants. He does not regard the desire of women. This is one of the ones I was waiting and waiting for and actually had others that knew this was one of my issues uh, send me those and those would include uh, men that I went to Haiti with, uh, an evangelist that we've had here several times, uh, have sent me the information that I needed. Uh, we have a president that at one time was part of the download program of Jeremiah Wright. Um, that is a program established there in Chicago. Its purpose uh, is to mainstream homosexual men. Uh, Barack Obama was one of those men that was participating in that program. Um, what Jeremiah Wright would do was set up sham marriages to legitimatize them. As much as homosexuality may not be allowable or, or maybe somewhat objectionable to large mainstream America, in the black community is, it is still uh, largely uh, looked down upon very strongly. And so his download program, which is well documented, um, has as its strategy is to take uh, gay black men and bring them into uh, a status within the community that would be less objectionable in which they could uh, function and gain power and authority. Uh, and again, much of this has been documented extensively. And uh, even before this, we had on the front cover of a magazine a statement, our first gay president. Whether he himself is that or not, he is that one that will promote that and I think we're only beginning to see the extent to which he will do so. So we come down to number 12 and we say, well, he's going to negotiate a Middle East peace treaty. And the question I keep having and I, what I have asked again and again is what does it take to do that? Um, it doesn't take friendliness with Israel to negotiate this treaty. Israel has never been the problem. They have always been willing to come to the table and negotiate a treaty. The problem has been the other nations of getting Syria and uh, Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia, particularly Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Libya, getting these other nations to the table, um, even dishonestly, which is what's going to happen in this treaty. They're going to wink, wink and know that they're going to break it, but uh, they're going to come to this table. What, is, what kind of individuals it take to bring them to the table? It's going to be someone they trust and we have a president who is the only president ever of this country who has bowed to the king of Saudi Arabia, we know immediately that he has a different kind of relationship with all of those Muslim nations than anyone prior to his uh, rise to power. It takes someone that can bring the Muslims to the table that will initiate this Middle East peace treaty. 
And I would contend that we have such a man in this current administration that is able to do so. The Arab Spring and all the events that are transpiring are setting a stage, the situation in Syria, and multiple Arab nations um, that we are prepared to have this. And I would contend that he is fully capable, in fact, most capable, out of all the candidates around today, to negotiate just such a treaty because of his relationship with the nations that need to come to that table, those nations in that region. And so I look through this, and yes, I look at that individual, and I say, what else? What else do I need? And I've had many of my friends intimate it. They have posted on Facebook. They have written blogs. They have, they have, have YouTube videos. Um, but they always stop short of saying, this is that. In my whole study, I've been saying this is that. That prophecy we see today in this nation, in this circumstance, in this situation, and I would contend that that person is this man. Based upon the criteria that God's Word describes, I find no candidate comparable to that candidate for this position, for this, not a position of power, but, but of infamy of the man of sin. So am I worried? Am I concerned? No. I'm kind of excited. Why? Because the day of the Lord won't come until the man of sin is revealed. Am I going to try to stop him? No. <laughs> There's only one man that's going to stop him. And that man is named Jesus. Am I going to be foul about him? Am I going to uh, speak nasty of him? No. It is not my place to do that. We need to be careful in our speech regarding him. We need to be in prayer. And yes, I can even be in prayer of thanksgiving even if he's identified as a man of sin. Why? If there's any leader that we're thankful has arrived, it should be the man of sin. It means the end of this age. I know that's a weird perspective to take. You're thankful for the man of sin? Well, we've been looking for him for a couple thousand years, folks. We've called popes the men of sin. We've called dictators the men of sin. We've called all these criminals men of sin. We've called negotiators men of sin um, because we want to see him. And the greatest danger is because of such a wanting that we are less careful of making sure everything on this list is fulfilled. But I just want to share with you that out of these dozen... I, and the one cannot be fulfilled because it's time frame. The 11 and the two that I'm looking at are fulfilled. Our president isn't African-American, largely. He is Arab. And he knows the Quran better than he knows the Bible. He fits the descriptions that God's Word gives us of that one. 
And so we can, with relative confidence, say there that is this. This is that. I'm sorry. This man is that man. Can I be wrong? Well, I dealt with this late in the series on purpose. Because if this was the only thing I saw in our day, I would say, uh, I'm just shooting in the dark. I'm just hopeful. I'm just guessing. But when we find all the other elephants present in the room that God says, when you see this, when you see this, when you see this, when you see this, and I come down to God's Word and I find the, one of the last criteria we're looking for is the revelation of the man of sin, the abomination that causes desolation. When you see him, know that my coming is nigh. Now, will it be today? Will it be next week? Will it be next year? Will it be 2016? I don't know. That's not what I'm about here. We're about taking God's word and I have to be convinced that God has given us this list on purpose. And he has told us, until you see this man, know the coming of the Son of God is not on you. But when he's revealed, Christ will come. So if he's not the man of sin, then relax. Because Christ's coming is still off a ways. But if he is, and I would contend he very much is, based upon this criteria, not my wishful thinking, I'm not bending and twisting this list. Yeah, it takes a little research to ferret out some of these things. But it can be done, and many others have done it. I'm not the first. Maybe I'm the first one that you've ever encountered. The fact is, is that we have a man of sin in power who fits this description. And the place that he is in power fits the description of the empire that will face off with Christ. How should we then live? Well, Paul's statement to the Thessalonians, I think is we should encourage one another with these words that we endure to the end. That we do not lose faith. We're not going to run over here and run over there saying, He has come, He has come. But rather, we're going to brace ourselves for tribulation at the world's hands. And build within ourselves a character by God's grace and according to His Word that can stand whatever the man of sin and the nation called the beast throws at those who are called by the name of Jesus and follow after that kingdom. Exciting days that we live in. And it needs to be impressed upon us the urgency of our message. For so much has been revealed in our generation that we can't miss it. 
So I want to challenge you to be excited, to be anticipatory, but also to be at work in your own life and in the lives of those that you know who do not know your Savior. And even those you don't know, 